Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. I have a special guest today. His name is David Taylor Klaus. He's a master certified coach, speaker, and author on a mission to unearth and unleash the personal mastery of entrepreneurs and senior executives. Since 2008, DTK, as he's known, has empowered his tribe to take an active, intentional, and dynamic role in their development and create the kind of life rhythm that enables them to build profitable businesses, raising thriving families, and live wildly fulfilling lives. His best-selling book's name is Mindset Mondays with DTK, 52 Ways to Rewire Your Thinking and Transform Your Life. Hello, David, or DTK, what you prefer to be called. <laughs> They they both work. As long as it's not Dave, we're fine. Uh, that's perfect. Well, I'll call you David. Thank you for being here. Well, uh, you know, it's just, I'm inspired just by reading what you're doing, especially how you're uh, blending something, you know, most coach, they all want to tell you how to scale your business, do more and more. But the fact that you're blending family right in there from the get-go, it's, uh, it's, it's quite great. You know, it's interesting. I spent the first year, I felt like pushing a boulder uphill. My clients would either hire me to be a business coach or mm -hmm. a life coach. And then I realized what was so hard was you can't coach half a person, mm -hmm. right? Whatever patterns are showing up at work, I promise you they're showing up at home or in relationships or parenting and vice versa. And it, I started being a stand for, no, 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 no. If you see, for your listeners, you can't see, there's a, a sign above my desk that says, achieving more requires becoming more. Everything about getting better at doing what we do starts with getting better at being who we be, who we are at our core. I can't think of anything that's more tied to going back to basics. We do the work on ourselves so we can do what we do in the world better. And that is, that is I will tell you, it makes people uncomfortable. And not everybody who I talk to, you know, is comfortable enough with that idea to continue a conversation. I get a lot of, oh, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can relate to that. So, so David, why don't you, let's, let's um, go a little bit to the origin story in your own progress, too, because I'm sure it wasn't like immediate that you got to that point. And I, I read somewhere you were a serial entrepreneur. So I'm always uh, curious to establish the link with what were your passion as a younger person, the younger version of you, what, where you wanted to become, where were your dreams back then? And then, you know, we'll, we'll come forward into what your life became. I think I'm going to date myself here. Um, when, you know, I didn't want to be a policeman. I didn't want to be a firefighter. I wanted to be speed racer. Okay. So I, I was, I was really clear on what my mission was when I was six, but I didn't realize that wasn't a real job. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting. I One of the beautiful things and one of the curses about ADHD is that we tend to be a little time blind, right? We're not very clear on estimating time 
So that gives us a powerful ability to be super present in the moment, because as we joke about our eldest child who is ADD off the grid, we have two time frames. We have now and not now. So I wasn't very good at planning ahead for what I wanted to be. I was very responsive and almost reactive to what was happening around me. So I spent a decade in hospitality or 11 years in hospitality because I loved it. It was high energy. It was constantly shifting, constantly changing. Um, when the industry had its second massive upheaval during those 11 years um, with a the market crash in 87, I was like, mm -hmm. I need something that's less fickle. Mm -hmm. So I went into technology, <laughs> which okay. was not less fickle. <laughs> um, but I loved technology for a lot of the same reasons. It was constantly evolving, constantly changing. And because in 1987 and 88, we didn't really have a clear idea of what technology was going to become. Remember, the internet didn't exist then. When I graduated from college, there was no internet the way we understand the web now. Mm -hmm. And so I was working with, with a, a company called Landscapes where we were technology consultants. And what we were helping companies do is figure out how to make their big mainframe computers talk to their PCs and these new things called Macs. And what I realized very quickly was there wasn't a problem getting the machines to talk to each other. It was a problem getting the people to talk to each other. Mm. That was the problem because the mainframe people thought all of the, everybody else were just silly children using these little computers. And the Mac and the PC people, they didn't talk to each other because they hated each other. <laughs> it, was a, it, it was almost a religious difference between them. And we spent so much of our time getting all the players to play nice together. Because what I also understood very early about technology was the silicon was supposed to serve the carbon, meaning that the computers were supposed to make it easier and faster and more efficient to do what the people needed done. And all too often early in technology and even today, we're getting pushed to, oh no, this is how the systems work. So you need to adapt what you do to the way they work. Mm -hmm. And that's wrong. That's patently wrong. So our company became really focused on let's map what the humans want done and let's make the systems bend to that and morph around that. And then in the early to mid nineties, we started hearing about this thing called the internet and the World mm -hmm. Wide web. And every time we talked to our ad agencies, PR firms and Marcom marketing communications companies, those were our clients. Every time we talked to them about the internet, we had to draw it as this little cloud because nobody really knew what the hell it was. Mm -hmm. um, and they would come to us and ask us about it. And what do we do? What do we need to do? Our clients are asking us about this internet. Mm -hmm. So I, my then business partner and I launched a company that, that would build websites. We, it was an internet strategy and web development firm back mm -hmm. in 1995. We sold our first website and then I had to spend the next three days learning how to code. <laughs> I had no idea how to build one. I love that. Um, yeah, I, I tended to fall backwards into things because, oh, this looks fun. Let me go do that. And I could get people excited about it. And then I had to figure out how to do it. About 10 years into that company, Leticia, everything looked fabulous from the outside. You know, the company was around 10 years. Less than 7% of companies ever make it 
10 years. That's, mm-hmm. It was crazy. And this was during the period where Alan Greenspan referred to it as irrational exuberance. Mm-hmm. From ni- 95 to 2005, mm-hmm. the internet, yeah. we had to reinvent our company multiple times. What unfortunately was happening is I was, I was leading the company I thought I should lead. Mm-hmm. I was leading the way I thought I should lead. I was working for clients we thought we should be working for. And everything was really oriented to the should. So life looked great. Company had been around 10 years. I, you know, three kids in private school, a couple of houses, a couple of dogs, blah, blah, blah. Everything looked fabulous. But every time I turned the doorknob to my office, my stomach turned over. Mm. I, I had lost track of what was important to me. And it's really common for entrepreneurs to get so wrapped up in what they're doing and how they're doing it and how it looks and what the future could look like that they lose track with what's important to them, what's driving them, what they're passionate about, what their values are. And I got so lost that by by August of 2005, the only thing that I knew for sure were the five best ways to kill myself. Hmm. And I, and I thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it because you're not the first one that have shared it takes courage, but I know a lot of people can relate to that. I actually recently lost a very good friend and colleague to suicide, somebody I thought I would never say that about. So I, I thank you for sharing that because it's important to realize how how desperate things may seem and then seeing what you achieve because I'm going to take you out of this story very quickly, but I want to read the, hear the rest. I mean, anything you read about you, you say, wow. And people focus on the wow, but it takes courage to sh- share the low points. So for that, I, I thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, and, and I think that's the challenge. The suicide rate for entrepreneurs is so unbelievably high because I think we're taught too often that, oh, you're supposed to be able to figure this out. You're bright enough to do this. You should be smart enough to figure that out. And that's not how it works. There, There's an isolation that is inherent in entrepreneurialism because you're, particularly for solopreneurs, and even for when you're running smaller companies, even when you have a business partner, that's not who you talk to about this stuff. Whatever the rules, the unwritten rules are, no, 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 no. Don't freak out your partner. Don't freak out your employees. God knows don't freak out the investors. Yeah. Right? But then there's so much stigma around getting therapy, getting help, and actually seeking out the support that we don't have inherently in the system. Um, one of the things I do when I work with startup groups is talk up. I'm not a therapist. Mm-hmm. I don't do therapy. I can't coach therapeutic issues, what I can work with folks on is how they navigate those issues out in the world. But they've got to get the support they need, whether it's from a psychiatrist, psychologist, a counselor, a therapist, to do that therapeutic work, to do the work on themselves. Now, how they live with that in the world is another avenue altogether. Mm -hmm. But nothing replaces getting that support getting that help. And there are now organizations that even the funding organizations are saying, look, here's a group of therapists that we work with that we refer people to. Mm-hmm. I, I just read something today that that if, depending on who you look at, the average age for startup, 
for for heads of startups now is either 42 or 45. Harvard says 45, Wharton says 42. Mm. And that's a report I just saw this morning. That first of all, that's shocking. If that's the average age, knowing how many folks there are in their 20s and 30s, wow, that must mean there's a huge wave, more than I ever thought, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. But it, it's incredible that that people in their 40s, they haven't had that midlife clarity yet. I don't like calling it a midlife crisis. That's horrible. <laughs> it's that midlife clarity when you all of a sudden realize, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be focused on. This is how this is what I want to be focused on. Not all this silly surface stuff that I've been caught up in. Mm-hmm. And how fascinating that the average age is in their early 40s. Yeah, I love that. I love an author called Richard Rohr. He wrote a, a book about the two lives. Have you said it? So he says first life and second life, and he separates and he calls that kind of awakening, kind of connecting to to what it's pers- purposeful, that's your second life. So he everything he says in the books, like the ego and the money and all the things that you were sharing, like I was doing great by everybody's account, you know, that's kind of first life uh, success measuring. And then you go into like the second part of your life and somebody go there sooner than others. Somebody yeah. never gets, somebody might die and they never get into what he calls a second life thinking or second life mindset. Uh, and so I, I think... I think there's more than two. Yeah, you know, probably my, there's more than two. Yeah. My <laughs> youngest son graduated high school in 19, so right before the pandemic. <laughs> and at one of the info sessions for the incoming class, I mean, our kids are sitting next to us, but the woman who's at the front of the room starts talking to us like our kids aren't there. It was really cute. Um, she said, These, your children for this class are predicted to have seven different careers, not jobs seven different careers in their lifetime and four of them don't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe that. And I think that's fantastic. Yes. I mean, we were raised, what do you want to do? And that question had an unspoken trailer to it, which is, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? <laughs> that's not how it works anymore. Yes. I mean, I think, I think what's rich now is getting folks to look at, well, what do you want to do next? Even the the professions like law and medicine, where it takes decades, you know, it takes years and years and years to get into the practice. There's still physicians who have multiple careers after. And I, I think it's important for us to change the conversation, particularly for the under 40 set. This is not what you're doing for the rest of your life. Nobody gets a gold watch at retirement anymore. <laughs> yeah, I I totally agree. And everything is possible. Like I always like to tell when people say you know, I'm too late. This is too late for me. And this is, you know, when we were talking, uh, you know, off record, and we were saying, what, what do we want the audience to, to be left with? And I say, to be inspired and to be inspired to get unstuck, to be inspired so that if they are the ones opening that door that you described, and I want to hear about what was the aha moment, like, I'm not happy. This is, I'm not in a good place, even if everything seems great. How how do people get unstuck? And I guess that's that's a lot of the reframing that you you know you talk in your book and how to reframe yourself. So so how did you reframe yourself when you had to you say I'm gonna get out of this situation? I'm gonna reframe my mindset. And how can others do it too? Well, look, the the, the universe has a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, in my case, it's kind of a dark sense of humor. <laughs> so 
my wife and her and I are driving back from. So we live in Atlanta, and we had gone to a, a coaching workshop, sort of a life sandbox called Falling mm-hmm. Awake in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And it's her. It's the weekend that Hurricane Katrina is barreling mm-hmm. down onto the Gulf Coast, mm-hmm. and we're driving east towards Atlanta. And I look in the rearview mirror, and I can see the sky is getting black. Remember that storm covered from oh, yeah. Texas uh-huh. all the way across to Georgia. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and as I think to myself, "Wow, that's a massive storm." The voice I heard back said, "Yeah, but it's nothing like the storm inside you." I was like, "Really? <laughs> that's that's uh, the heads up." Yeah. So, so I did. I mean, that literally that was the wake up call for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I did find the humor in it later, out in the moment. Um, I got back to Atlanta and I, I got help. I, I started looking, you know, interviewing therapists. I had therapy. I had a coach trying to help me figure out, A, the therapy, what was it that got me here? And mm-hmm. let's work on that. And the coach is, what do I want to do from where I am now to move forward? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a great combination. Good strategy. Really yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. It was, did I think it was a great strategy at the beginning? No, I was throwing spaghetti at the wall. And what I've learned over the last 15 years as a professional coach is exactly that. You know, paint the wings while you're flying. The coaching can help you decide what you want to create moving forward and to begin to move forward. The therapy is painting the wings. It's figuring out what it is that got you here and what you need to unwire and work on. So it's a powerful combination. And for me, let's get really specific. I, I didn't stay for me. It's important. When you talk about back to basics, the most important thing is to understand why you're doing what you're doing, what's important about it. And I didn't stick around for me. I had learned that children of parents who commit suicide are 50 times more likely to attempt suicide in their life. <laughs> that is not the legacy that I wanted to leave for my children. So I stayed for them. But let me be clear, that's not enough. It's got to be for you. That was my leverage point to get to it being for me, for me staying for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I created by doing the work with therapists, with coaches. That gave me the ability to to work with what is it that I want to create in this world? and. I know people get freaked out by, oh my God, a mission or a purpose. That's so big. No, no, no. What do you want to see different in in the world that you live in? And that takes the sting of, oh my God, a vision is so big. A mission is so big. A purpose is so big. Look, everyone, I believe, everyone is here to create some sort of a shift, especially entrepreneurs. And the lucky ones are the ones who figure that out. And the earlier you figure it out, the better. What is it that you want to see different in the world around you? And I think there's a great access point for folks. Let me share a distinction between a manager and an entrepreneur, because this helps. A manager is given a goal, right? And their job is to manage the execution of the plan or plans that have the highest likelihood of achieving that goal that they've been given. Is that fair? No. An entrepreneur decides what she wants to be true and then goes about setting the conditions so that her truth becomes reality. That's a different way of thinking. And it starts with, what is it that I want to be true? What do I want to see different? And is it 
different is, is it something, oh, that's great. I want that to be more, more common, more prevalent, bigger, higher scale, or, ooh, not that that's got to be changed or, ooh, that's missing. I have to create it. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are all forms of what is it you want to see different in the world. And then all you do, <laughs> I'm doing air quotes. Mm-hmm. All you do is then set about creating the conditions to make what you want to see true real. That is the most basic way to create and get access to what your vision is, what your mission is, what your purpose is. That's all just massaging the words to make it palatable for others. Mm-hmm. The truth is, get clear on what you want to see different and then start chipping away at what it takes to make it real. Mm. Yeah, that's very powerful. That's very powerful. And it's not an easy exercise. It's not an easy exercise, I think. But what if it was? Yeah, it wouldn't be. Yeah, I know when I tried to get, well, when I got myself clear on what I wanted to do, because I work for the family business. So for me, Mm. I I enjoy, I have a big legacy in my shoulders. Sometimes it feels quite heavy, but there's, I cannot think of a job that would be more fulfilling than carrying my dad's legacy into this for the company I'm carrying. So it's heavy, sure. But, you know, so I had to figure out a way to bake in something that that makes me feel good, which is my mission of inspiring others. And, I, and when I tried to get clear into what do I want to do, I, I started to peel the onion and that onion has a lot of layers. <laughs> Amen. Right? Because you peel it and it's like, well, I want to be this. It's like, yeah, but that's not the real thing that you want to do. And you peel another layer. And and, and I saw some of, uh, you know, like in your in your media kit, I believe in the research I did that your purpose statement is I'm the resonant energy that unearths and unleashes the power of the heart. And I love that. Mm. I love that Thank because you. you read that and that sounds so true, you know, but I'm sure that to get to that, you peeled a lot of <laughs> onion. Yeah. A lot of onion on the floor. Well, and and again, that was, you know, what is it that I want to see different? Yes, eventually it gets translated into language. And that's a version of the language that works for me. And again, there's some people that listen. Some of your listeners are going to go, what the hell is that? I I hear (laughs) you. Right. And, And some will lean in and that's okay. We spend so much of our time and our effort and our energy and our attention on what happens inside our head. Our head is only 8% of our body mass. Come on, our brain, that little lump of gray and white matter is 3% of our body weight. And yet we spend 90 plus percent of our time figuring things out and going to our brain for our answers. Nature makes that ridiculous because there is orders of magnitude, 10, 100,000. Those are orders of magnitude. There are orders of magnitude, more data coming from our bodies to our brain than the other direction. What we miss most often, particularly entrepreneurs, what we miss so often is listening to that somatic intelligence, listening to our, the, the wisdom of our body, heart, gut, whatever you want to call it. We don't pay enough attention to that. And if I were ever going to walk into a boxing ring against Mike Tyson, I would not walk in with one hand tied behind my back. (laughs) It it would go badly anyway, but it would go worse with one hand tied behind my back. Going out into our world and trying to affect change in the world, only using our head is just as insane as walking into a boxing ring with one hand tied behind your back. Mm -hmm. We're missing 
the depth and the breadth and the, and the fantasticness of what else we know. Mm-hmm. Our intuition doesn't come from our head. We just yeah. attach language to it. That's why we think it comes from our head. It's not. And, and what I want to encourage folks to pay attention to is what do you actually know? Not what are you making up in your head? Yeah. What do you actually know? When you, when you have a gut feeling or it comes from your heart or you feel it somewhere in your body, what's that telling you? Yeah. And I was going to say that, that we dismiss the gut feeling quite fast as something unimportant. And we give more yeah. power to the stories we make on our head. Right. But you said you, the perfect way to say it, the, the stories that we make in our head. So here's what happens. An event occurs. We have a physiological reaction to it. Then we attach meaning to that physiological reaction. And then we, we act in the world based on that meaning that we just made up. Yep. Well, humans are meaning making machines. That's what we do. That's how we make sense of the world around us. But understand that all of that meaning is made up, all of it. I had a teacher years ago, my early coaches, who, who he said, Rick Tamlin's comment was, if everything's made up, why not make up something that serves? Mm-hmm. And, and if you'll let me, I'll go back to that example you sure. gave. Nothing heavier than working, you know, than holding your father's legacy or working for the family business. You get that that's just as made up as saying, well, it's the easiest thing in the world to carry my father's legacy and to hold this business. They're both made up. Yep. Which one serves? Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's the game. We make up, we make things hard. Life doesn't have to be hard. It just has to be conscious. Mm-hmm. It's hard because we go unconscious. Mm, that's... That's a tweetable moment, as uh, Oprah would say. <laughs> yeah, right. Like the, question, the question I ask a lot, and, and yeah, I even poke myself with it because it's worth always being reminded, what will this look like when it's easy? Don't get caught up in if. What if it were easy? If is a dangerous leak. Mm-hmm. What will this look like when it's easy? So as you look at carrying your father's legacy, what will it look like when it's easy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very similar to what it looks like now, to be honest, because when you base like we, the thing is when you know how it will look like. And so, for example, in our case, it's integrity, it's losing deals when everybody's not playing fair and they using, you know, like that kind of stuff. So that's the struggles you have. It's never the struggles with with the essence of who we are, let's say, as a company is the is stuff that everybody's dealing with. Anybody with the same kind of values and 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 you know and, and living the way you want to live, then yeah, you're gonna lose deals. So you have to learn to let go. Yeah, that wasn't a good deal for us. Um, you know, it's like as my dad says, he says, to lose money, we don't need help. We can go on a cruise and, and right. just lose money <laughs> on our own. <laughs> so when we have a bad deal, but that's the learning, you know, as a as a leader of the company when you saw a big deal and you want to get it and that's you know you want to win it just for the winning it but then you forget what's behind winning it yeah but are you gonna make money are you gonna you go feel good with yourself are you compromising who you are all those other things but it's a journey it's part of it's part of then being at peace with where you are yeah roy disney said years ago that uh when your values are clear decision making becomes easier I totally agree with that. 
Yeah. And if there's not a values alignment, that deal is a no. And that's an easy no. It doesn't, we make up, we make things harder than they need to be. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean you don't feel sad or like all the feelings that saying that no and and staying true to those values. I think that's the problem we most of us have. It's like sometimes, for example, I don't struggle that much with staying true to the values. I struggle more with, okay, well, that means that the result I want is not going to come from this angle. It's going to come from somewhere else. And so you kind of refocus your energy into something else. That was really powerful that, that if it doesn't come from here, it'll come from somewhere else. That I think the challenge comes from when, oh, it's not going to come from here, period. And people stop there. Yes. The, the idea is, I, what did I, I, I wish I could remember who said it originally. No means next one or next opportunity. <laughs> oh, I like that. It's, pro- yes. it's probably Zig Ziglar. <laughs> but that idea of, oh, this one's a no. Well, what does that make available? What does that make space for? And trusting that you'll be able to create that or invite that. That that's the hard part. We get we get taught scarcity. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard lesson to unlearn. And uh, that's also very powerful. Yeah, I love that. And I love that no means next. That's the name of our new book. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No means next. No, I, I hear you. I got married at 34 and it took me a long time to meet my husband. And trust me, if coming from a Sicilian family. I was already, all bets were off. I was already probably not into getting married, not into men, not into commitment. Not, I mean, all these stories that people made in their minds were already up there. And But I'm glad that to me, when every time I thought this guy is the one and I felt it in my gut, it's not, I moved quick next. And it's not like I had a lot of dating life, but I just, I always tell people, I was very quick at identifying if it was not going to be the person. So I never really invested a long time into meaningless relationships, which unfortunately I think a lot of people do not to digress into relationships, but like, you know, you have friends and you say, I mean, you are this, this person is that it doesn't take rocket science to say this this ain't going to work. This one's oil, this one's water. That doesn't blend. And then two years into the relationship, it ends precisely for those things. You know, but yeah, I two, think uh, two years, two kids, two decades, it doesn't yes. matter. At some point it's going to come apart. And I think yes. that that's the piece is being willing to identify that it doesn't align. And again, you know, back to that, you know, when a pattern shows up on one side, it shows up on the other. If people are not willing to, to call it when it's not right, that's not just going to show up in the relationship. That's going to show up in business. That's going to show up in leadership. That's going to show up in the way they are in community. A pattern doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is true. That and, is true. And here, it works in the flip side, too. One of the things that I've said for a long time is the only difference between leadership and parenting is one audience starts out shorter. <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, I always find it fascinating when you, you've got a client who, oh, my God, everything's going great with my team at work. Everything's humming along. But when I get home, It's bedlam. All right. Well, what's working with the folks that you lead at work? Oh, we're building buy-in. We're having conversations. They're feeling heard. They're feeling included. Great. How's that showing up at home? Oh, it's not. (laughs) We do dictatorial at home. Well, there's a reason it's not working. So the same patterns that are successful in one arena can map to the other. And it works both directions. 
mm. always. And, and it's always fascinating when people realize, oh, my, my, I'm showing up as a different person in this arena and it's working, but I'm showing up as myself in this arena. And, it, you know, so it's looking at where your patterns are working and where they're not. I like that. I like that. And you mentioned work and and home. And I know you have said um, that, uh, you know, work-life balance is killing us. And I know you're not. It's one expression that we use a lot uh, everywhere. So what do you think we get so wrong with that statement? Well, so uh, let me open it up this way. Whose idea was it to put the word work first? Good point. Good point. That, that's that's the beginning of why it's so destructive for mm. our way of thinking. The, the, the term surfaced originally as a way to make employees believe that working 70 hours a week, that, that they could have enough quality time in their personal life, because, you know, in exchange for the lack of quantity, that enough quality would work, then we could really... We could get as much time from you as humanly possible. <laughs> James Campbell Quick, he's a professor out in, in Texas, um, talked about in the late 90s, we had already gotten to the point where the 70-hour work week had become a badge of honor and almost the accepted norm, and people were jamming their lives into the cracks around that 70-hour work week, mm. which is insane. It is. So the idea of putting work first overweights, overcalibrates our attention towards work when I think that's patently wrong. So at the very least, it should be life-work balance. But here's the next problem. In order to balance two things, you have to separate them. And depending on where your listeners are from, call it a seesaw or a teeter-totter, think about it that way, that to separate the two, to get them to balance, but even before the pandemic, that's a ridiculous idea. How do you, how do you separate life and work? Work is an in, it is part of your life, and it doesn't always fit into a neat, tidy eight to five or nine to five bundle. I mean, unless you're working on a Toyota factory floor putting bolts into a chassis, mm -hmm. th there are very few professions where you actually leave work at work. Yep. Or you're just working one job, let alone working two or three to try to make the finances work, it's very hard to separate the two. So it's more about creating a rhythm between the different aspects of your world. And I don't think the word work belongs in the phrase at all, because if it did, then it should be life, work, faith, community, travel, freedom, all the different things that are important to you that are part of your life. Yep. Life encompasses all of that. So, there doesn't need to be the word work in there at all. The best way that I have found to describe what the lie of work-life balance was actually speaking to is life rhythm. It's getting that nice fluid rhythm between all the different aspects of your life that make it work in your world. The way I find life rhythm with what's important in my world is going to be very different, likely, than in your world. And in that person's world, everybody has their own sense of rhythm. Okay, first of all, thankfully it's rhythm and not tone because I can't sing to save my life. <laughs> but that idea of each person creating a rhythm across all the things that are important to them in their life and in a way that works for them and their family. That's the game. Mm, I like so that. So when we can replace work-life balance, which is an awful term, with life rhythm, 
then I think the language will shift our focus. Mm, I like that. And would would you agree? Like I feel I can totally relate. And but I also feel that depending on what stage I am in my life, that rhythm mm. is different. And then the Absolutely. different components, you know, like when I, I breastfed my kids, it was very important to me. And I never stopped working. And, you know, I traveled quite a bit and I, but I made it happen for a year. You know, I, I did it and I had to change my life rhythm substantially to make that. And then now they're all a little older and I find that I can refocus on other aspects of my life that I couldn't. So that that is an adjustable rhythm depending on where you are in life, right? Well, it has to be. Conditions change. Whatever your rhythm was in February of 2020, by March of 2020, your rhythm was fried. You had to recalibrate because mm-hmm. Parts of the country were shutting down. And as we move through 2020, 2021, and now the beginning of 2023, or you know, through 2022 and now into 23, oh my goodness, our rhythms have had to be recalibrated repeatedly as things open up and close down, as they shift and as they shift again. So yes, your rhythm changes. And we've got five generations in the workforce now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. From Gen Z to millennials to Gen X, like me, boomers. Mm-hmm. Even We even have some folks in the silent generation that are still working. This is a massive yeah. spread. And I mean, I am speeding towards the sandwich generation where I have kids that we're still attending to and parents that we're attending to and caught mm-hmm. in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. So our rhythm has had to be recalibrated a ridiculously high number of times mm-hmm. just in the last five years. Yeah, And so, yeah, we can look at that and say, well, this sucks. Well, no, it doesn't. What actually sucks is trying to maintain a rhythm that's unnatural for the conditions that you're in. Uh, Exactly. Dr. Maya Angelou is famous for saying, you do the best you can with what you know. And when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. And we get stuck saying, no, 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 this is how the world works. Well, the world changed, bub. You got to adjust. <laughs> I think that's so true. I think a lot of people suffer with that in the that they have this idea of where they should be or how they want it to be. And they hold on for dear life and they have a hard time letting go. And I'm a perfectionist by trade. And I maybe I, I get accused of the same, but I feel that if I hadn't let go some of that perfection, you know, in terms of how I was, I want my house to look. Well, I have an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old, so it's not going to look the way I want it to look. <laughs> so, you know, I've learned to live with that, uh, but get it to my acceptable point. So I, I've learned to yes. like get it to what's my acceptable threshold that it doesn't create suffering in my life and that I can bear with it in a, in a nice way, that it doesn't create this stress. And so I think finding what that threshold has been very useful for me. <laughs> Well, and then you get to play with, where do I find joy even? You know, this threshold, it's easy to say, okay, I'm a thresh- threshold where it doesn't cause misery. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes, and where do I find joy even in at this threshold level? Yes. You can reframe. But the biggest thing about coaching is that what we work with our clients to do is to change the lenses through which they see the world. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a, a, in my book, In the intro, one of the quotes that I share is from Carl Jung. It's, we do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Mm. And what's so amazingly powerful about that is, oh, well, if we see the world as we are, then we're in control of the lens through which we see the world. 
So we get to change that lens. We get to shift it. We get to morph it. And as we change our lens, we so we change our experience. We are in complete control of our experience in this world. Now, you, your listeners are going to go, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. Right? You're going to have a lot of people that are going to listen to that and go, no way. That's not true. The world is happening to me. That's the problem. That's the belief that keeps people stuck. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what I invite listeners to do is, okay, don't poo-poo it. Just sit with it. We do not see the world as it is. We see mm. the world as we are, right? If the, the more we play with willingness to believe that that's the truth, the more we can shift our world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a switch flip. It can be a slow burn. Let it burn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Let it burn. And I, I mean, I visited your website, which if I'm correct, is Mindset Mondays with DTK.com, correct? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it will be on, on the show notes. I know you, you know, people can buy the book from there. You have some, you know, they can download your framework, which I'm going to do because it seems uh, amazing. And then you have, you know, like a live coaching program. And 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 I always say that I don't sell things in my podcast. I don't promote, but I do like to, to let people know there are tools so that, you know, if anything they heard in this episode resonates, you know, it's great to know how to get unstuck and where there you can find resources to get unstuck. Is there anything, I mean, besides the incredible amount of info you have up there in your webpage, uh, David, that you want to share that's exciting that you're working on that we haven't discussed that is exciting you for this year? I'm playing with another model that captures a lot of what I've done with my coaching. Now, let, let me be clear first. The Rewire framework is online for folks to download for free. It's something that we built for the book to help people take each chapter has six prompts at the end of the chapter that's unique to that chapter that helps people take what they've learned in that chapter and make it real in their world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watched in every company I've ever had, in every company I've ever worked with, a phenomenon I call cubenesia. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and that's, so you go to this fabulous offsite, you learn this new way of doing X, Y, or Z, a new way of doing or thinking or behaving, and everybody's all excited and they come back to the office Monday morning and the phone starts ringing and the email starts pinging and the texts come in and they're overwhelmed by the work that they do every day and they forget everything that they just learned. Because we don't give folks a mechanism to make learning real and to embed it, to make it last. So what these six steps, the rewire framework is designed to do is take any new way of doing, being, or thinking and help you make it real in your world. So the rewire framework is there to download for free. Use it. You can apply it to anything you're working on, any book that you're learning, anything that you're getting from your community. Please use it. The reason I do what I do is to help people create shifts in their world, period, mm-hmm. full stop. Mm-hmm. The, the model that I'm working on is about how we is to get into the granularity of how we create change. And it has to do with creating grace, that sense of empathy for self and empathy for others in our world. Space. Space is, is, is a huge component. Because when our calendar is full, we don't have time for our brains to process and think. It, it, if you're over 40, you remember a time as a child when you were actually 
bored. Mm-hmm. When you weren't overscheduled, overprogrammed, or oversaturated by a thing in your hand going ping. And it's amazing how much of our creativity and our individual thought and uniqueness comes from what surfaces when we're bored. Some brilliant TED Talks that you can go look at that talk about the need for our brains to be bored. And so creating space in your world for you to have time to think and feel and intuit and come up with new thinking is something we don't create, we don't have. And when we have grace and space, that gives us the opportunity to create flow. That moment when everything is, when everything's running on all cylinders. Uh, Flow state is something that For those of you who run, first of all, I commend you. (laughs) But there's that concept of runner's high, where all of a sudden you get into the zone. You know, in athletics, we call it the zone. You get into that flow state where everything's moving perfectly and seamlessly. There are ways to create that in your world. And Mihai Chichmihai, who's written the seminal work on flow, talks about, and God help me, I can't spell his name, but... (laughs) (laughs) Working with folks on how to create flow in their life, one of the things I've realized is that that comes from grace and space. And for entrepreneurs, helping them build conditions around them where a flow state can happen is the most transformative thing I've ever done with clients. It's the Mm -hmm. most transformative thing I've ever done for myself in my world in teaching our children how to create that. It's been a massive shift for them. That's where alignment happens where what you're doing in your business and in your life is in alignment with your values. And that's the game. So that's much of the model that I'm working on now. And here's what I'll tell you. I'll make sure that, that Lacisha, you have a link where they can sign up to have a conversation with me. Mm-hmm. And, and because I'm talking about this model now, I don't do this on podcasts, but if your folks are interested in having more of a conversation about it, I'm completely open and I'll put a, a link for you for a wake-up call where people uh-huh. can call and talk Thank about you. this. Thank you. That's very generous. I appreciate that, David. And, uh, and you know, my last question of every interview, it's, uh, you know, what do you do that reminds you what makes you tick? When things get rough, <laughs> what, how do you reconnect to your source? That's a brilliant question. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I was talking to, to our youngest and our middleest last night about this. For me, I meditate every morning. And it doesn't have to be a massive practice. Because if I've got a full day, if I can spend five minutes focused on my breath, focused on being still, pushing out every other thought, those five minutes every morning, make a massive difference on getting out the emotional clutter, pushing out the noise, because that gets me reconnected to my intuition. That gets me reconnected to source. That gets me reconnected to what's important. And again, this goes back to speaking about creating space. I don't care whether you're doing five minutes of meditation or an hour of meditation. Giving yourself that quiet, focused time for you to start your day it changed my life. And, and I guarantee if you give it time, it'll change yours. Mm, I love that. I love that. I, I I embrace it later in life too, but now it's almost like I don't feel good if I start my day without that moment to to really just 
drink it all in and say, you get a new day to do great things. And so see how you're going to spend it. So, well, this has been a great conversation. I really thank you for your time. You inspire me. I got in a lot of notes out of this uh, for myself. So I thank you, David, and I wish you best of luck. And, you know, you're a forever friend of Back to Basics. You have an open microphone here for all your new books, all your new courses, and all your great, exciting initiatives. Beautiful. Thank you. It was an absolute joy to have a conversation with you today. Thank you. You will find everybody out there on the show notes, all the information to know how to reach David, if you're interested, and uh, thank you for tuning in. And until a new episode of Back to Basics, take care. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you and until the next time.